Do you love Uncover from CBC Podcasts? What's your favorite season? Which one did you skip? What do you want to hear more of? Help us make Uncover even better by taking our listener survey now. Visit cbc.ca slash uncover survey to make sure your voice is heard. This is a CBC Podcast. Previously on Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. This is them. Yes, government is asked. Good afternoon, this is Christine speaking. My sister Cleo died in 1975. She was 11 years old and was apprehended by the province of Saskatchewan and sent to Arkansas. Do you know her date of birth? I know absolutely nothing. The state of New Jersey is willing to give us her registration of birth. New Jersey. New Jersey? Do you have any idea that Cleo was in New Jersey? No clue. Hello? Hi, it's Connie and Marnie. Okay, I'll buzz in. That's Cleo. That's the only picture I have of her. Those were the eyes that haunted me when I first got the picture. What, what is what is this? This is what my mom wrote. I want you guys to read. Can, can you just read that last sentence again? She does. She does what? It says um, she does sometime apparently mention her siblings. Johnny born in 1961. Cleopatra was born in 65. Are in foster homes, and plans are underway for their adoption. There it is. Her birth year, 1965. Cleo's spirit is very much alive. She stares at me across time, asking to come home. I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo, an investigative podcast by CBC News. Ready to go? I think so. It's a gorgeous spring day as we pull into a farm just outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We're here to meet Johnny Semaginus, the oldest sibling in the Semaginus family, the only one who has memories of his sister Cleo. Johnny has asked us to meet him at his friend Tom's organic farm. Hello. Hello. How are Hi. you doing? Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. You. I'm Connie. I'm Marnie. Tom, Tom Colton, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. She's in the truck. In the truck? Okay. Yeah. We started on this journey to try to find Cleo, but the further we get down this road and the more we uncover, I realize that as much as I want to solve the mystery about where she is and what happened to her, I also want to get to know more about her, not just how she died, but how she lived. I'm hopeful that Johnny can help us get to know Cleo. He was four years older than her, and is really the only sibling who knew her before they were adopted. Hey, how are you? Johnny suggests that we go to one of his favorite spots on the farm. I usually hang out here on weekends and stuff, so it's nice. So these, uh, these roosters are used to you? Yeah. Tom has chickens and ducks and goats. Rabbits in here. And acres of fields where he grows vegetables. This table and stuff set up in the barn there. This is an amazing barn. Yeah, it is. Huge. You're making them nervous. 
It's one of those really big old classic barns. It sits on top of a small hill behind Tom's house, overlooking the fields. The big doors are wide open, and we sit at a table just inside, looking out at the rows of trees along a small trail that leads into the fields. But yeah, Tom has his corn. Last year he gave me right off the stalk. It was a reddish color. Ate it just like that. It was so fresh. I can see why you like it here. Oh, it's nice and tranquil. Like I said in the summertime, we sit out here at nighttime. Just relax and it's very peaceful. I'm kind of surprised when I meet Johnny. I thought that because he was older when he was adopted, he would sound more like the First Nations people I know from back home. But there is no trace of a native accent. Johnny sounds like an American. Does he do garlic as well? Yes, he does that. Things of garlic too. But looking at him, there's no mistaking his roots. Johnny is a big man, and he has long, dark hair and a beard that is flecked with gray. His almond-shaped eyes are brown, and so is his skin. Johnny says there aren't a lot of indigenous people in Lancaster, and here he's known as chief. You know, it's not a sign of respect. It's not a matter of disrespect to me, I don't think. And it, I always tell people, first eight years of my life I was Indian, lived on a reservation. Food was pouring water down the one hole and getting a gopher in the other end, and that was lunch, you know, snaring rabbits. You know, that's why in the morning and the evening, it was food. What, like, how did you cook the rabbits? Did you make soup? Yeah. 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 I remember rabbit soup. I did not like rabbit soup. <laughs> But you knew how to set a snare? Yeah, everything, yeah. Before we got here, I asked April to describe Johnny for me. She's the only sibling who has seen him in person as an adult. April told me that Johnny looks big and gruff, but really he's like a soft teddy bear. I like Johnny as soon as I meet him. You're from Saskatchewan too, I heard? Yeah, I'm I'm Cree from Saskatchewan too. What part? Uh, So southern Saskatchewan, near Regina. Yeah, Yeah, near Regina. Did, Did you ever go back? No, I have no need to. Home is here, so. Well, Everybody asks me, keeps asking me to come back. I'm like, okay, maybe next year, but I have no desire to. Home is here, family's here, so. Hi there. Hey, nice to meet you, America. Almost as if on cue, a young woman walks into the barn. How's it going, Johnny? Good. And gives Johnny a big hug. Get off work? Yes. I think the nice. other guys will be here later for, like I said, we got oysters and tuna Ooh. and stuff. Cookout. It'll so, be fun. So you guys are related. Yeah, she's my little mm-hmm. sister. Yep, we are both adopted. So I just want to paint this picture for you. Physically, Johnny and Erica couldn't look more different. He's a large Cree man in his mid-50s, and she is a tiny black woman in her early 20s. They look nothing alike, but it's obvious they're close. And today, Johnny has asked his little sister to be here for moral support. I just hope like he gets some answers. It's something that's his mind, so it would be so nice if we could get some answers for him. So like a, you you known her since she was yeah. born? Yeah. Well, like I said, it, I think it helped me because since I didn't grow up with my other sister, I got to watch her grow up, so which is helped help me out in the end, too. The other sister Johnny is talking about is the reason we're all here, Cleo. Now remember, for decades, Johnny and his other siblings thought Cleo was adopted in Arkansas. But now we've discovered she was actually adopted in New Jersey. Now, if it's true she's in New Jersey, how is she the next state over? Lancaster, Pennsylvania is less than two hours from the New Jersey border. Although we don't know exactly where Cleo was adopted in New Jersey, it's not a huge state. 
there's a good chance that after their adoptions, Johnny and Cleo were just a few hours apart without ever knowing it. Um, what did you call her as a kid? Did you call her Cleopatra or Cleo? Cleo. As we talk, Johnny's fidgeting with his keys and looking down at his phone. I said I see her on the phone every day. She's your screensaver? Yep. You want to be reminded of her? Yeah, because I've found everybody else, but this is the only one I haven't found. So in Christine's story that she, she wrote about Cleo that we read, it said that Cleo had been found in Arkansas and that she had been murdered. Is, yeah, is that something what, that you had that's, heard? That's what we heard too, but then our mother told us something different, our aunt said something different. I didn't know what to believe, so. She, she has a lot of desire to find out what happened to yeah, Cleo and yeah. what happened. Do you have the same? Yeah, I do. I've been searching for years, but after a while, I just don't know what to do. And I think us natives, they just don't, you know, they just don't care about us, but... I care about, so I don't care about finding my sister, you know. I could, man, I could have said, oh, well, she's dead, big deal, but I, I don't feel that way. She's family. I know that Christine and April feel this too, a longing to find their sister, Cleo. But Johnny's quest feels a little different. Unlike his siblings, his vision of Cleo is not only based on that little photo that they all hold dear. Johnny grew up with her. He has memories of Cleo. She was behind a tree, smiling. I couldn't see her half her smile, but... Yeah, we were family then, but then, like I said, we got adopted out of there again. We always got taken away. It must have been hard to form attachments and relationships when things were so in flux. Yeah. The memory of Cleo that Johnny can't stop thinking about is the memory of the last time he saw her. It was funny. They took us. They didn't took us anywhere public. It was like a freaking field. Johnny says that he and Cleo were living at different foster homes at the time, and a social worker picked him up and drove him to meet Cleo to say goodbye. It was like halfway between somewhere. Here's your sister. His old station wagon. She came in and. It was in a field? It was funny, you'd think it'd be at a house or something, but it was at a it was like at a like a rest stop or something. There's your sister, go say goodbye to her. Cleo was about to be adopted, but he didn't know where she was going or if he'd ever see her again. I said I'll try to find her and I I've been trying, but But uh yeah, it was seventy four I'd been thirteen, I guess. So Cleo would have been eight or nine. Do you remember anything about what she said? Not really. I, I think I did most of the talking. Was she crying? Yeah. I think I was too, but I, I, I remember telling her. I'd, hopefully I'd find her, but... It was a little lie to make to her, but I wanted to make her feel good. Why, do you, why did you say it was a lie? I lied to her because I didn't think I'd ever do it. And I didn't think I'd ever... I mean, I was trying to be strong for both of us. What do you tell her? I was her big brother. 
It's just such a heartbreaking scene to imagine, like two siblings meeting in a field to say goodbye. Yeah, it was tough. She was driven away and I went the other way. And I've been looking for her ever since. What do you think will happen when, when and if you find out about Cleo? What will that mean to you? Closure, fulfilled promise. I think I'm just staying alive just to, so I can fulfill this promise. Much of my work over the last few years focuses on unsolved cases of missing or murdered Indigenous women and girls. And in our interviews, almost always, families talk about wanting closure, about how important it is to know the truth, about how the wondering and unanswered questions lead to a sense of injustice. But I wonder if for Johnny and his siblings, getting closure is about more than finding Cleo but also finding some resolution about what happened to them all as children. Since being adopted in the United States, Johnny has never returned home to Saskatchewan. But the memories of his difficult childhood are never far from his mind. Memories of child welfare authorities showing up at their house, sometimes with the police, to take him and Cleo and all of their siblings into government care. Where we got picked up at, at the one place in South Battleford. What do you mean got picked up at? We got from the agency, social services. I remember I had a giant stick. They wouldn't, I wouldn't, that was the last one to go. What do you mean, you, did, you were trying to fight them or get yeah. away? Yeah, yeah. By this point, their mother Lillian had left the reserve and moved the family to Battleford, a small city in northern Saskatchewan. Lillian was a single mom to six kids, and she sometimes got her nieces, who lived just a few blocks away, to help look after the kids. Wilma Semaganis still lives in Saskatchewan and remembers the day, more than 40 years ago, when her little cousins were taken away. She and her sisters were babysitting for their Aunt Lillian. It was after school. It was a school day, and we I went home, and my mom said, Hey, you got to go over to... Uh Auntie Lillian's and watch the kids. She's going to go to AA meeting. So we got there. And most of the kids were outside, but they were coming and going in the back door. And But the baby was there in a blue bouncy chair. And Auntie was there. She had a skirt, and I remember she had a scarf on her head. She went out the front door. And it didn't seem very long, and then all of a sudden, there was, you know, the door just burst open there's police officers there and then and then uh, the social workers came in and then um, they just started loading up the kids the kids were just crying and the last one they loaded up was crystal the baby chris cameron now and they were loading her up in fact when auntie auntie came back in she had forgotten something she knew what was going on, and she got just hysterical. She was yelling, she was crying, and the um, police officers handcuffed her to a door. Oh, my gosh. So she was on the floor, and she, just, she was crying, and she was screaming. And 
What was she saying? You know, like, don't take them, don't take them. Wilma says police left Lillian handcuffed to the front door after they took all of her children away. And uh, she, she never stopped crying. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like it was such a long time. It, it got dark, and my dad came in. He was quite upset, and I, I spent that whole time sitting beside her. And I, got, I remember I got her water, and I gave her some water. And the whole time she was just handcuffed to the door. It was a wooden door with those old-style brass doorknobs. Then my dad left. He had to go to the police department to tell them to come and unhandcuff her. And that was the last time we ever, ever saw those children. How could something like this have happened? Why did social workers take Johnny and Cleo and their siblings? Was there suspected abuse because of the blue bum birthmarks that Christine had mentioned? Something here isn't adding up. More than ever, I want to find out what led social workers to take the Semeganist kids from their mother. Johnny says that after they were apprehended, he and Cleo and their siblings were taken to a group home in North Battleford. It was a Robinson group home in North Battleford, Saskatchewan. I remember that. And they weren't very nice because I tried to be protective of them, but they thought I was being bossy. And I used to end up in the um, the padded room downstairs. They had a padded room downstairs? Yeah, in case I acted out, locked me in there. I mean, that's why I like being alone. That's terrible. Yeah. It was, but the group home seemed to be temporary, and eventually, Johnny and his siblings were placed in foster homes, living with families in rural areas near Battleford. We know that April and Annette were placed together in one foster home, and Johnny also remembers at one point being in a foster home with Cleo. We used to speak our language, but they, they wouldn't let us speak the language because we'd be like talking to each other, and I've since lost, lost the language. You, you grew up speaking Cree? Yeah, we were together that one year. We were both in the same school in Medstead, but... Do you remember who the, who the foster parents were? The Mechanics. I wonder if we can find this foster family. I really want to talk to someone who knew Cleo and Johnny at that age. We start to search for anyone with a similar name who ever lived in Medstead, Saskatchewan. One, two, three, one, two, three, okay. We find a woman named Donna Mechanic who says, yep, her parents fostered kids in the 1970s. It's been 45 years, but we'll see. So we give her and her mom, Yvette, a call. Do you happen to remember a First Nations family that might have came to your home in 1972, a, a girl named Cleo? Yes. You do? Yeah, what? I remember Cleo and Johnny. What do you remember about them? Just very quiet kids. Cleo was kind of a little bit shy. Took her a few days to settle in a bit. Johnny was always hungry. That's the main thing I can remember about him. Like, their, their, their clothes were very, very limited. They didn't have much of anything, really. What about Johnny and Cleo? Were they, like, were they close? Were they affectionate with one another? Did you feel like they were a comfort for each other? 
Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I always, I always thought they were very close. Yeah. yeah. And like I said, I mean, it kind of makes sense when you're a brother and a sister and you're shoved together into a stranger's home. I mean, that you're going you're gonna to bond like that anyway. Mm-hmm. But they did seem to be close. But Cleo, I mean, he was just always smiling. Really? Uh, Johnny was probably a little bit more serious than Cleo. But, uh, yeah, Cleo was always smiling, enjoying life. and I just, you know, particularly remember going down to Johnny's bedroom to make his... Uh, his his bed and whatnot, and finding <laughs> fruit jars and tins open in, in his closet where he'd been taking food out of the storage room. And so I remember telling him he could open up the fridge anytime he wanted if he was hungry during the night to, to go and eat. Cause I guess he'd always maybe had, had been hungry and had been deprived of food. <laughs> that's that's heartbreaking to to feel that or to know that he was worried about food as a child. Well, that's yes. just it, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we take it for granted, but yeah, lots of kids, they don't know if there's going to be food in the house or when they're going to have their next meal. So, and that's, that's The Mechanics seem like nice people. I'm glad that Johnny and Cleo ended up in a safe home, but I can't help but think of their sisters, April and Annette, at a foster home just a short drive away, experiencing what they described later as terrible abuse. I wonder how families were chosen to become foster parents in the 1970s. They just said, yeah, you'd be willing to take in kids and help out. And, you know, one day they sh- they'll show up with the kids, you don't get any notice, and then they decide they're adopted and they're gone that, that day. Do you, do you remember saying goodbye to Johnny and Cleo? Yes. What was it like? Can you describe it? Worrisome, wondering what was going to happen to them, I guess. I think what happened to Cleo, I guess I had good reason to worry. I came to the Navajo Nation looking for answers after an Indigenous elder vanished in the dead of night. But I soon found something else. A tangled web of violence and retaliation. It's survival out there. That's what it is. It's about survival. Those guys know something. I just think they're afraid to say it. People know you can get away with murder out there. I'm Connie Walker. Listen to Stolen, Trouble in Sweetwater on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I've been thinking about how the Semeganist kids found out about their adoptions. According to April and Annette's adoptive parents, Jeff and Kay, the girls were so excited to meet them and to be adopted. They called them mummy and daddy as soon as they met. But Cleo and Johnny were older. Did they want to be adopted? How did it happen? Why were they both sent to the United States instead of being adopted in Canada? I asked Johnny what he remembers. When I got adopted, it was great. I'm like, oh, good, I get the... It was up to me. They gave me a prize. <laughs> they sent me to hockey camp, and they gave me a, a bicycle with a banana seat. It was like a prize. Like, it's up to me. What, do you want anything? Yeah, they sent me to hockey school with the, with the Philadelphia Flyers in 1974 when they won their first Stanley Cup. Who, who's they? The, the agency, people from the agency. It was like a... Prize. I, at the time, you don't think about it. And in exchange for those prizes, what happened? I was allowed to come to the United States. 
I don't, I don't, I'm kind of confused. I don't quite understand. Well, they said it was up to me. What do you want if you agree to this? If you agree to be adopted, you yeah. can get a prize. Yes, that's technically what it was. And if you, if you'd said you didn't want to be adopted? I wouldn't have got anything. I thought, whoa. I'm shocked by what Johnny is saying. He believes that social workers essentially bribed him to agree to be adopted. Like it was an incentive to be adopted. Yeah. And that, I wanted to go, I wanted to leave anyway, which I did. Looking back on it, do you think that's a fair, a fair choice to present to a kid? Uh, at the time, it was, but right now, I, hey, I was glad to leave. So, I'm here. I think I'm better off. I wonder how Cleo's adoption was presented to her. Did she have any choice but to go? Johnny says he was happy to leave Saskatchewan, but I can't help but think of his memory of Cleo, a young girl crying in a field, saying goodbye to her brother. It doesn't sound like she was so happy to leave. After Johnny finished the hockey school he says he was promised when he was 14 years old, he got on a plane with a social worker to meet his new family. Here's one I got adopted by these lovely people. 1975. Degree of adoption. Yes. Where was that? In Pennsylvania, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. They lived on a small farmette, that's what it was. I always thought they were there to help us with their farm. Oh. That's what it seemed like to me. You think, oh, you think that they wanted to adopt you because they yeah, wanted help? Farm and stuff like that. Actually, this isn't the first time I've heard that story. Indigenous kids adopted in the 60s scoop who believed they were not only adopted to become sons and daughters in a new family, but so they could help out as farmhands. When Johnny arrived in Pennsylvania, he found that the family had already adopted two other Indigenous kids from U.S. tribes. When I came down here, the two adoptive natives that they had, they were from Yakima, Washington. They were Yakima and stuff, Indian they were running away, planning the stuff they were going, you know. I'm like, what's going on? I don't even know what was going on. So. Well, I, it must have been just jarring, right? To, well, like, yeah. be moved completely across the continent. Yeah. And then and in a family that there was already stuff going on there. Oh, yeah. It was just, that was very strange. Johnny says that he and the other adopted kids slept outside in tents in the summer and took refuge in the barn when it rained hard. The family's biological kids slept inside the house. At some point, Johnny says his adoptive parents actually built a separate building for the adopted children to live in, but it wasn't connected to the house. I didn't know what to do. They left, they ran away, and I was like by myself, and I ran away eventually too, because it just didn't work out. Johnny ran away, just like his sisters April and Annette, who lived on the streets of Toronto at 13, and just like his sister Cleo, who tried to hitchhike back home to Saskatchewan. Johnny speaks so matter-of-factly about his experience that it's hard to get a sense of just how much this has affected him. But I can only imagine how difficult it would have been for him and for Cleo to move all on their own, away from their families, away from everything familiar, and end up in a new place, in a new family. I hope that Cleo had a better experience than her brother. Johnny expected to be welcomed into a new home. Instead, he slept outside, 
with adopted siblings who were also miserable. And that's not all. Here's a funny thing. On the farm, I think I come to grips with it. I think I was abused on the farm. And I can say this now because I told friends about it. It wasn't any kind of insertion or nothing. They played like, oh, you're the, you're the cow, we're the bull. It was a weird game. <laughs> but it was like, at the time, you don't think nothing of it. But it was like, there's nothing inserted, but it was still strange. I thought about it. I'm like, I was sitting one day thinking about it. I'm like, I think I was, I came to Revelation. I think I was abused, but I wasn't really abused. Does that make sense? It just seemed like a game to them. That was all it was. But I don't, uh, was that abuse? I guess. Johnny says he only thought about that experience after getting information about one of the lawsuits launched by 60 Scoop survivors against the Canadian government. I was taken from my mother's arms in the hospital. For a long time, I was ashamed. I lost who I was, who I was supposed to be. A group in Ontario representing 16,000 survivors sued the federal government for its role in the 60s scoop. There was an officer there who had a gun, and my mother thought she was going to get shot. So she held back from trying to grab me and save me. Our children are valued. We want them back. We have to stand up and say, this can't happen anymore. The survivors claimed they suffered a devastating loss of culture when they were taken from their homes and adopted into white families. The worst days of my life were my childhood. I grew up not even knowing that I was native. I used to lay awake at night thinking I was a little alien baby and sometimes someone would come back for me. I was wondering as a child, how come I was alone? Like, where did my family go? Many say they went through trauma and experienced abuse in their new homes. In 2017, they won. The judge sided with survivors and said that the government of Canada failed to properly consult with First Nations and failed to protect children from the loss of identity and culture. It is a great day in Canada when Canada's judicial system chooses to say that our children are so valuable and sacred and precious that we will protect them by law. What a day this is. Yes. Following the decision, the federal government announced a settlement with survivors worth $800 million. The details are still being worked out, but we know the settlement does not include Métis or non-status Indians. There's a lot of um, loss here that took place. There's going to be intergenerational effects of this, historical trauma that's going to take place because of this. To assume that this is over is a misconception. We don't know if Johnny or his siblings will be included. If they are, it could mean they'll each get a payout between twenty-five dollars and $50,000. But an advocate for Indigenous kids did the math and found the settlement amounts to about $3.80 per day, of a survivor's lost childhood. I'm supposed to be grateful that they took me and robbed me of a chance to know my family. The prospect of money from a settlement isn't what motivates Johnny either. I have nothing to gain for it. I just want to look for my sister, that's all. A lot of the people who call themselves survivors of the 60s scoop feel like they were wronged in that they were taken away from their families and their communities and, and they lost their language and their culture. 
do you feel regret about any of that? No, not at all. Like I said, it's just a, it was a different part of my life. I can't, you know, for the longest time it did bother me. I mean, if you want to talk to my ex-girlfriend, she'll tell you uh, stuff I did back in the... I started drinking a lot when I was with her, and that's how we broke up. But it's sort of strange. Like I said, I've come to deal... Like I said, it wasn't for our family. I'd uh, decided to be dead or in jail, I think. Johnny credits his survival to the people he now calls mom and dad, not his biological parents or his adoptive parents. Bill and Kay Henry are Johnny's foster parents, a couple who took him in after he ran away from his adoptive home in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I, I was over there today. They're also parents to his little sister, Erica. They live like about 15 minutes from here and they're in their 70s. They're getting a little bit older, so it's just them now. Yeah, window don't open, so I gotta get the air conditioning I drive with Johnny to meet his parents. He has one of those big vans that looks like it's from the 70s or 80s, before they invented minivans or improved mufflers. While we're driving, Johnny says something that has stuck with me. They, what, are they, what are they trying to do to us? They're trying to assimilate us to, to you know, Francis uh, Scott Duncan, we're proud. I've been assimilated, I think. Johnny means to say that Duncan Campbell Scott would be proud because he, Johnny, has been assimilated. You may not know the name Duncan Campbell Scott, but he was Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs for the Government of Canada in the early 1900s, and he's considered the architect of the residential school system. For over 100 years, 150,000 Indigenous kids were forcibly removed from their homes and sent to residential schools to be educated and assimilated. Campbell Scott's goal was to, quote, get rid of the Indian problem in Canada. On top of the incredible loneliness after being taken from their families and communities, the children in residential schools, some as young as five or six years old, were beaten and punished for speaking their language or practicing their culture. Many went through horrific physical and sexual abuse. Kids were forced to attend and live in these schools year after year. Thousands of kids tried to escape residential schools. Some were found and sent back. Others died trying to find their way back home. The last residential school closed in 1998, but generations of Indigenous families are still dealing with the effects. It's been described as cultural genocide, and many see a direct link between the racist attitudes that led to residential schools and the child welfare policies enforced during the 60s scoop. Johnny grew up on the reserve, but because he was part of the 60s scoop, he's disconnected from his biological family, his community, and his culture. He has been assimilated. But despite everything he's been through, Johnny doesn't see himself as a victim. Like I said, I don't go like, oh, my life sucks, but it doesn't. I have friends, you know? I live paycheck to paycheck, and I'm happy with that. We arrive at Bill and Kay's house. It's funny, no matter how many times I come over, I still knock. They have a little weathered cloth banner in the garden by the front door that says, Welcome All. Hi, I'm Connie. Hi, I'm Bill. Nice to meet you. Good morning. My hands are cold, and I haven't even been outside. Yours are nice and warm. It's nice to meet you too. Not only did Bill and Kay adopt nine kids, 
on top of having three biological sons, they were also foster parents to over 130 kids over 30 years. Um, do you remember the day that, that Johnny came to, to live with you? Almost vividly. He had his hair really, really short. Mm-hmm. I just remember them telling me that they had a, a child that had put himself on the streets because he had, was in a bad situation. And so he was coming to our house. So there he came. And he's been one of the best, believe me. I wouldn't trade him for the world. And I'm not saying that just to you. I mean it. Kay looks exactly like she sounds, like a sweet little old grandma. Her white hair is parted in the middle and pulled back into a low ponytail. She's wearing a faded floral smock that she made herself. And next to her on her couch is a little embroidered pillow that says, the heart that loves is always young. So what, what did you know about John and about his experience before coming here? I knew it was bad. I knew the adoption was very, very bad. I knew that they were abused, and I knew that it didn't go well. When we were back at the farm, Johnny told me that a few years after he moved in with Bill and Kay, he wrote a letter to Saskatchewan Social Services asking about Cleo. I got a letter saying she died in 74. I mean, that was it. I know it was a long time ago, but do you remember what it said in that letter back from social services? Yeah, well, when she, when she died, that was it. They just said she died in 1974, and that was it. That would have been the same year she was adopted before me. And that's all it said. 1974? The letter April showed me from social services said plans were underway for Cleo's adoption in 1974. Did that mean that she died in the same year she was adopted? I wrote a letter back to them, and they didn't really respond. They didn't want to give me any information anyway. What was what was your reaction? Oh, yeah, I was, I was 15 at the time. Started doing drugs and drinking. and. I asked Kay and Bill what they remember about when Johnny found out about Cleo's death. I remember when he said that, yes. Okay, where? How? Was she with a family? Or was, was she murdered? Did she just die from being sick? I mean, these are the questions that you have. What is the big secret? They are just acting so secretive and so strange. But to not know anything, not be told anything, and then this child just disappear into thin air? No. Mm-mm. Something's amuck. A little answer goes a long way. Which means that there's unanswered questions out there that that something's not right. And if she was killed, why not tell him? How? What? That's what I mean. Why, if they knew that much, they had more information. Yeah, even if they didn't want to tell him how the situation happened, they could at least tell him that, and they don't even want to tell him that. What would it mean, do you think, to get answers to some of those questions? They could have closure. This way he has nothing. He took care of all of these babies until he was placed down here, and now he just can't account for this one. What, like, having that responsibility as a child, that must have been hard for him, I guess. Must have made him the man he is today. 
and it was hard for him. Sometimes we turn out good because of hardships, and sometimes we, we don't. But he did. Meeting Kay and listening to Johnny talk about her, I can't help but notice that he doesn't talk about his biological mother, Lillian, in the same way. He only ever calls her by her first name, never mom. To Johnny, Kay is his mom. And she knew I didn't have anybody down here, and she kept me. Yeah, it wasn't for her. I said I'd be dead or in jail. She was always there for me anyway, so unlike my other, unlike Lillian. Back in the barn, Johnny's looking at a picture of Lillian that April gave us to give to him. Is that what she looked like when you were a kid? Yeah. Yeah. Did she wear her hair in braids like that a lot? Yeah. Lillian looks really young in this photo, maybe in her late teens or early 20s. She's really pretty. She has long, dark hair that she wears in two braids, and the ends are tied with strips of leather. It's like looking at a stranger, I'd say it. I don't mean to sound like I'm... It's like hair, there's somebody's mother. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just, I know that's my mother, but to me it's Lillian. Nice picture of her, though. So you don't, you don't feel any kind of attachment to her? Not really, I hate to say it, but... Johnny seems angry with Lillian. As the oldest, he spent the most time with her, and he remembers all of the times she let him down. Let me see here, this one here the other day, it sort of broke me up here. What was that? I think I, didn't I show you that picture? Which one? I gotta look here, I gotta find it. Johnny wants to show me a different picture, something he saw online that triggered memories of his childhood. Oh, it's a picture of Mounties and uh, priests and uh, nuns taking kids away <laughs> from my house. It just reminded me of what happened, but it was... It was, it was taking kids away, but the parents were there and everything, kids running away, except I didn't run. I was there trying to save us. I tried, I think, it, I, in my mind, I remember thinking Lillian's going to come save us, but she never did. Was it a painting? Yeah. Was it that Kent Monkman painting? Yeah, I think so. I know the painting he's talking about. It's by Cree artist Kent Monkman, and it's called The Scream. Honestly, I have a hard time looking at it. I mean, it's beautifully done. Kent is an amazing artist, but it's a horrific scene. It's basically a depiction of an apprehension of Indigenous kids. It looks like it's in front of a house on a reserve. There are priests, nuns, and several Mounties, Royal Canadian police officers in their red surges, ripping Indigenous kids and babies from their mother's arms. The children in the painting are crying. Their arms are outstretched, reaching for their siblings or their mothers. Some are running away, trying to escape the arms of the white men and women who were there to take them away. My eye keeps going back to the faces of the mothers. They're screaming, crying out in anguish, desperate to hang on to their children. But then you notice the Mountie's gun, and you know who is going to win this battle. It's a scene you can imagine has played out hundreds of times in Indigenous communities over generations, first in residential schools and then again in the 60s scoop, as if Kent is trying to make that exact point on the bottom right edge of the painting, 
a Mountie looks like he's literally about to scoop up a small child who is trying to run away. It just brought back memories, you know, but she was never, my mother wasn't there to rescue me though. They didn't, she wasn't like, like there was a lady there, but that wasn't, our mother wasn't there. You mean because the the woman in that photo is reaching for her kids and the police are holding her back? Yeah, but that didn't happen with me, us. So. The scene in the painting actually reminds me of the memory that Johnny's cousins have about their apprehension in Battleford. I don't know if Johnny remembers it differently or if they were apprehended more than once. But either way, I think that if I find this picture hard to look at, I can only imagine how difficult it is for Johnny, who has memories of Cleo and the rest of his siblings being taken away. When when they came when they came to, to take you guys away, that must they have took been everybody. scary. Yeah, it was. I was the only one that was there resisting because they didn't know any better. What do you mean you resisted? Well, I had, a, I, had, I had a stick, big stick. Kept looking around for Lillian, but she never came, so. Were you trying to prevent them from taking you or from yes. taking your siblings? Yep. Did you wish that you could have stayed with relatives? They, I don't think they, uh, they didn't have a choice. Or Lillian didn't tell them about the choice they could have had. Johnny is so calm when he talks about this, but clearly... It's an incredibly painful memory he'll always have. I feel like with each interview with Cleo's siblings, we're learning snippets about their mother, Lillian. I cannot fathom the pain she must have experienced as a mother having her children taken away. But we know that she may have also experienced that same scene years earlier as a child. Because the one thing we do know about Lillian is that when she was seven years old, she too was taken from her home and sent to a residential school. Johnny didn't know this about his mother until right before she died. And hopefully with a story like this, it'll uh, make someone want to help. Not just about me missing my sister or my family missing sister. It's, 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 uh, people just don't realize. I just told my girlfriend last night, she didn't know about residential schools, 60 Scoop, and missing and murdered indigenous children. She didn't know, because some people just don't care. But when you're so missing, you know, you want to know. Residential schools, the 60 Scoop, and missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Do you think those issues are all connected? I think so. I could have had a better relationship with my mother if she would have told me what happened. I make a joke out of it. I, I think I hit the trifecta. Got all three things going for me. Mother, me, and my sister. I know it sounds bad, but you gotta, sometimes you gotta laugh about it because what are you gonna do? Johnny suggests that one of Lillian's sisters might have more information he shows me one of his messages with a woman named Marlene Semaganis, Lillian's sister, 
who still lives on Little Pine. She says, I remember all of you. I have pictures of all of you, just happy and always smiling. He says, my sister loved you. She loved all her kids. What's happened back then was part of 60s scoop. Okay, I mean, do you mind going up just a little bit? Because does she talk about getting a letter from Cleo? Well, I said apparently, yeah. What did, what is? Oh, here. Well, this one? Who's that one? It says, Cleo wrote me a letter, telling me she was good, good life, then begged me to get her somewhere in Vermont. I didn't know who to believe. So Marlene, who's your mom's sister, said yeah. that Cleo wrote her a letter. Yeah, but tell- I don't... But I never, I didn't believe her either because I didn't know what to believe. She said telling me she had a good life and that, and then begging me to get her. I want to go and get her. Then shortly after that, I was told she had left for the spirit world. It was devastating. Yeah. So their Aunt Marlene got a letter from Cleo after she was adopted. Did she know where Cleo was living when she sent it? Does she still have the letter? Maybe it has a return address that could help narrow our search. Did she give you advice about how to get information about Cleo? No, she didn't. What did she say are in containers in Christopher, or just, uh, just below this? Photographs. Oh. I put Marlene on our list of people to talk to. But first, Johnny wants to call the government of New Jersey again. He's hoping he'll have more luck than Christine. Come on, that is Oh, yes, yeah, so I was wondering if you could help me out. Okay. I'm calling about it. I'm trying to find out information about a deceased relative back in 1975. And I was given information from Saskatchewan that she was adopted in New Jersey. And I was wondering what information... Your party is not answering. Please try your call later. We're sorry, but your call will now be disconnected. Yeah, I was just calling to clarify that uh, you're looking for your um, birth sister's uh, original birth certificate. Yes. Yeah, and I think we've, we've already explained that um, we can only look for that record based on their current legal birth certificate. Uh-huh. So if you knew what her name was post-adoption, we could find it very readily that way. However, with only a birth name, we have no way of checking for that record. Okay, so like I said, uh, I guess i got to call Saskatchewan to try again. Another dead end. Without knowing Cleo's adoptive name, we're no closer to getting answers from New Jersey social services. Johnny plans to ask the government of Saskatchewan for a copy of his ward file. A ward file is a record kept by social services, and it's supposed to contain information about every interaction a child has with child welfare. Apparently, they're not easy to access, but if Johnny gets his... It could shed some more light on why social services became involved with his family, and maybe even information about his mother Lillian and Cleo. See you guys guys leaving the night then? We say goodbye to Johnny. Have a safe trip. And head back to Toronto. I leave feeling unsettled. With each interview, I feel like I'm getting closer and closer to uncovering Cleo's story. But there are still so many questions. And the more I learn about what I don't know, the more I want to find the answers. But the reality is, I'm not sure exactly where to go next. We're trying every official channel that we can think of, and we've hit so many brick walls. Everybody we've talked to says they've never encountered a situation like this before. Is finding Cleo even possible? I thought it would be a more straightforward process, I thought it would be easier. I didn't realize that if we were going to find Cleo, what we really need 
is a little luck. That very same night, my producer Marnie is up late on her computer. So I was just going through a bunch of different databases within New Jersey that you could search. Obituaries, newspaper clippings, any kind of public record she can access. What were you searching? Like, were you searching Cleo? Were you searching girls? So I used first name Cleo and birth year 1965. 1965, the year that Cleo was born. That crucial bit of information from April's social services file. It was getting late. It was like midnight at this point. And up came this hit. With a click of a button, she finds a needle in a haystack. And there was this headstone. A picture came up, and it just looks like someone snapped it in the cemetery, and it was gray, sort of two-toned stone. And it looked a little bit old, but it's it had the name Cleo and the birth year 1965. What was the reaction when you saw a headstone with the first name Cleo? My heart skipped a beat, for sure. And I looked closer, and it said 1965 to 1978. So if this was Cleo, she died when she was 13, Mm -hmm. not 11, like Christine thought in her story. Yeah, exactly, exactly. A girl named Cleo died in a small town in New Jersey in 1978. Is this Cleo? Did we find her? We need to go to New Jersey to find out. On the next Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. About a quarter of a mile, left turn onto Church Road. I feel nervous. Me too. <gasps> so are you from here as well? Did you? I was just wondering if you would recognize her photo. Oh, wait a minute. This is Cleo. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Missing and Murdered Finding Cleo is written and hosted by me, Connie Walker. It's produced by Marnie Luke and Jennifer Fowler. Mika Anderson is our audio producer, and our senior producer is Heather Evans. To see photos of Johnny and the painting he spoke about in this episode, The Scream by Kent Monkman, go to our website. It's cbc.ca slash findingcleo. Subscribe for free to get the next batch of episodes. Search Missing and Murdered Finding Cleo on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.